Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, continuing our series today, The Ten Commandments, Dr. Newfeld's going to bring us a message titled, Accountable to God. So let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verse 19, as Dr. Newfeld joins us now. Might be hard to imagine. How is an event that happened some 3,500 years ago in the desert of Sinai to a slave nation applicable to the entire world? Yeah, it's true that what happened there is a unique event. It's never been an event like that one. The voice of God spoke to an entire nation of some two million people. Every one of them heard this voice of God at the very same time. Furthermore, what God said that day were the Ten Commandments, the law for this group of people. Look, a lot of cultures and nations have had what they have called divine law. But however they received such a law, and whatever you might think of such a law, this event at Sinai is unique. The nation stood before a mountain, and God descended on that mountain with extraordinary signs. The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament accurately recounts this historical event. I'm reading Hebrews 12, 18 to 20. It says, A blazing fire and darkness, and gloom and a tempest, the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So let's all admit that this event was a unique event in history. And let's also admit that this event is how Israel got her law. But I've entitled my message, Accountable to God, and I mean by that, that the events in that desert in some fashion makes every person in all of history and every nation and culture in this world uniquely accountable to Israel's God. Well, how can such a thing be true? Well, the reason that I think that's true is because that's exactly what Romans 3.19 says. Listen to these words. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now notice that line of thought. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Or to put it plainly, what God said to Israel, while they were standing in front of Mount Sinai, this is the law that applies uniquely to them. And then comes the word, so that, or in order that. When God gave this law to Israel, the whole world in that moment became accountable to God. But but how? And that's the focus of our study. I've been preparing for us a study of the Ten Commandments. I've argued that the Ten Commandments are uniquely a law that's given to Israel. Israel is God's chosen people, and in a unique sense, this law applies to them. It's the law for their nation. It's not the law for another nation, but I'm now arguing that all nations become accountable to God in this moment. Let's see if we can understand that. Let's start with how the law was felt in Israel. If you follow the biblical account, you're going to notice that in Exodus 19, God prepared his people for receiving the law. Then in Exodus 20, God himself descends on Mount Sinai and speaks the Ten Commandments. And as we've seen, this becomes a covenant. Israel was to keep the law, and God, on his behalf, would make Israel his unique treasured possession. And the people agree to the covenant. All that the Lord says, they say, we will do. 
And if you go from Exodus 20 to Exodus 32, we find the first test. Israel camped at the base of Mount Sinai for some two years. And during that time, God would call Moses up to the mountain and he would give him further laws. And and as we've seen, all the further laws were but an extension of the 10 laws or the 10 commandments. And this became the routine during those days. Moses would go up to the mountain for a considerable period of time and, and receive the implication of the 10 commandments. So Exodus 32 verse one says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, before the law was given, this action of of making a god out of gold would not have seemed that unusual. I mean, after all, this people left Egypt, and Egypt was covered with gods and idols representing gods. You know, I myself have stood in the, the museum in Cairo, and I've marveled at a golden calf idol from Egypt's Second Kingdom period. Indeed, I strongly suspect that Israel's constructing a calf idol in the desert must have been that which they were accustomed to. So see the construction of a calf idol from their perspective. When matters become frightening and they seem out of control, many of us, just like them, go back to familiar patterns and things that brought us comfort in the past. And since this nation of slaves continuously saw the strength of the Egyptian gods, so why not turn to just such a god at a time when they're alone and vulnerable, without a leader, facing death, in a howling wasteland of a desert. Besides, the God they encountered on the mountain was terrifying, and the gods of Egypt, at least in this hour, seemed comforting. I mean, don't you see? You can understand their reasoning. You might even identify with it. I mean, hold on to what you know, especially when you're faced with a world of things you don't know. At least, that's what they might have thought. But all of that reasoning is just dead wrong. Why? Because they had made a covenant with the great creator and that great God had given them a law. No, 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 no. They're not holding on to familiar patterns. They're lawbreakers. The law, don't you see it? Strips away their excuse. The law defines their behavior. The second command says, you shall not make an idol. But here they are making an idol. So how do you define the act of making an idol? Well, it's called being a lawbreaker. It's a criminal act. It's a violation of the covenant. And as we go through this series, we're going to see that's precisely what the law does. The law is kind of like a highliner. I don't know if you've ever used a highliner when you read a book. I do, especially when when I read a difficult or a technical book. I, I mark out key factors in an argument, and so I can quickly identify them when I'm reviewing. That's, that's what the law is. It makes certain behaviors stand out. Building a golden calf is breaking the second commandment. That's what the behavior is. That's what God calls it. No more excuses. You are a lawbreaker. Now, we need to follow Israel's behavior for the next 40 years, and soon we get a very clear picture. This is a nation of lawbreakers. And it is this insight, Israel seen up against the law, that that forms a major portion of the Old Testament. And during the time of Jeremiah the prophet, when Israel was then being besieged by a foreign army that would eventually break down the wall of Jerusalem and, and take the nation into exile, 
Jeremiah reminded the people why this had come to be. So I'm reading now Jeremiah 32, verses 22 to 23. It says, And you, God, gave them this land, which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it. But they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. And so the story of Israel, how she left Egypt and came into the promised land, everything that happened to her and her destruction at the hands of the Babylonians, all of that stuff is the story of the law. It's the law that defined Israel's behavior like like a highliner at every moment of her existence throughout all of her history. Well, fine. That's the story of the Old Testament. But how is Israel's unique experience a lesson book for the nations? How is the entire world held accountable to God in Israel's failure? I mean, after all, if you've been listening closely, I've repeatedly said what the Bible says. Whatever the law says, it says to those under the law. This is the story of Israel. And as I've said, this is Israel's unique experience. It's not to be repeated. There is no nation on earth that can claim to be God's chosen people. Israel is the only nation that is until, of course, the coming of the church. And yet from Romans 3.19, I'm arguing that the unique experiences of Israel brings accountability to everyone. I mean, how is such a thing possible? Let me suggest an example. Imagine, if you will, a classroom, a grade school full of unruly kids. The teacher makes a decision that he will take one student, Johnny, and make Johnny a lesson for the entire class. When Johnny does well, the teacher heaps praise on him. When Johnny rebels and refuses his homework, the teacher makes sure that Johnny feels the full consequences of his action. And for a while, the teacher allows the rest of the class to act as they normally do, unruly and out of control. But Johnny is different because Johnny is the lesson book for the class. If the rest of the class paid attention, they would have known that what happened to Johnny would soon happen to all of them. Every day we hear from listeners from right across the country. Sean recently wrote, I often listen to Dr. John's Bible teaching while driving to work. It's given me great insights into God's message to his people. Back to the Bible Canada is indeed an inspiration. Well, we're so grateful for messages just like these, but they only happen because of your partnership in making Bible teaching you can trust available to as many people in as many places in as many ways as possible. One way we want to do that this month is by sending you our very new free combo CD series called Joy in Tough Times. Five messages from Dr. John and five Laugh Again episodes to encourage you and to remind you of where confident joy is really found. So just call us today for your free copy of Joy in Tough Times by calling 1-800-663-2425 or by visiting backtothebible.ca. I've been arguing that God's dealings with Israel is an illustration of what will be his dealings with the entire world. I'm reading in that light Deuteronomy 29:22 to 28. It says, "In the next generation, your children who rise up after you, 
and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say, when they see the afflictions of that land and the sickness with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath, all the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? And people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they had not known and whom they had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. There is a fundamental reason why the nations around Israel are surprised by her destruction. Is this not the nation the Lord redeemed out of Egypt? Is this not the nation before whom the Lord destroyed nations far more powerful than her? Why, when God fought for Israel and made her the greatest nation on earth, that is, you know, during the time of Solomon, why, when this was accomplished by the miracles of her God, did this same God now turn against her? I mean, how could such a thing happen? The supposition then is that Israel's destruction brings a sense of utter surprise to the nations that surround Israel. How could such a thing occur? And then as they look into it, they become aware that the Ten Commandments have been violated, most especially the first two. Don't have any other gods. Don't make yourself an idol. Israel completely disregarded that. And Israel's God doesn't make laws that can be broken with impunity. He punishes lawbreakers with a full fury of his justice. That's what the destruction of Jerusalem was, justice against lawbreakers. Now, you've got to pause here and think, wow. Do you think that the Old Testament itself becomes a foundation for anti-Semitism? I mean, after all, this is a nation of lawbreakers. Well, you might think that until you read Jeremiah 25. Remember that Jeremiah has become known as the weeping prophet. He lived during the destruction of Jerusalem, and, and he prophesied all the events that happened. But he never prophesied destruction with a sense of glee. He did it while he was weeping. He was deeply moved by what was going to happen. And so with this as a background, listen to what Jeremiah says to the nations who watch Israel's destruction. I'm reading Jeremiah 25, 15 to 19. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse as at this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his officials, all his people, and then and then the passage goes on to mention all the other nations around Israel. Every one of them will have to drink the same cup that Israel drank, a cup of his righteous judgment. And just when we wonder what this passage is all about, let me take you forward several verses to Jeremiah 25, 29. It says, For behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name, and shall you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. You want a translation to that? 
It means that what God does in Israel, he does to the Jews so that the whole world will take note and realize that God's dealings with Israel is illustrative of his dealings with the whole world. And by the way, can I personalize that message? I must. First, if you're remaining in sin today and if you're breaking God's law, that's what sin is. If you're cavalierly just carrying on, might I suggest that you you find a Bible. Read the book of Lamentations. The book was written by Jeremiah the prophet after Jerusalem was destroyed. Consider carefully words like those found in Lamentations 1 verse 20. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns, my heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the streets, the the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. And then to the next chapter in verse 2, the Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Zion. And then to verse 4, he has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe, and he has killed all who are delightful in our eyes. And there's verse 5 says, the Lord has become like an enemy. Oh my, go through that book and consider. This is how God treats lawbreakers. That's what justice looks like. Now, lest you internalize this and become hopeless in despair, there's a second lesson that we need also to learn here. Go back again to the image of Jeremiah, of the Lord forcing the nations around Israel to drink the cup of his anger. And with that image planted deeply in your mind, think about Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. Luke 22, 41-42 says, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then according to the will and command of God, Jesus, your Passover lamb, has drunk Jeremiah's cup of wrath for you. The very cup that was given for you to drink was drunk by your Savior on your behalf so that his mercy and grace could flow on you, you, you lawbreaker. So then can we come to a conclusion? Yeah, we can. The Old Testament or the First Testament and the covenant of the law applies to you. Yes, it is the story of Israel about people who are culturally different from you. God chose Abraham from among all the people of the earth. And he not only promised Abraham that through him he would make him a great nation, but he also promised him that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so what is the believer in Jesus to do with the law? I reserve one entire program for that, but at the very outset we can say that the law highlights who we truly are. Think of it this way. Before the law, you might have said to yourself, it's just harmless office flirting. But now came the law, and it told you, no, no, this is not harmless flirting. This is enticement to adultery, which breaks the eternal command of God. If if you yield to this, you are subject to God's bar of justice. It's, It's not an affair. It's not just a thing. And it certainly isn't as if it doesn't mean anything. It means something. It's adultery, you lawbreaker. And when you curse your parents, it's not because they had it coming. It's because you're breaking the fifth command, you lawbreaker. And when you trade in thoughtless rumor in which you bring slander on a a person's head, you're breaking the ninth command. The law articulates your behavior. The law takes away your excuse. The law will not allow you to minimize your sin. It identifies your actions and exposes you for who you have become. You have become an enemy of God. 
Galatians 3.24 says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So much is contained in that verse, but one thing is certain. We don't come to Christ because we need meaning and purpose in our lives. We come to him because we need to be saved. No, Christ came because the law has utterly condemned us. We need a savior from the curse of the law. Show me a man or a woman who doesn't understand that. I'll show you someone who's never known Christ. Christ is our savior who has saved all who repent and trust in him from the curse of being a lawbreaker. I end this program by a simple call to conversion. If you have never come to terms with your sin, breaking of God's law. Now's the time to do it. Christ comes to you and makes you an offer. He says to you, I will drink the cup on your behalf. All you must do is confess your sin and surrender to me and trust in me, and I will drink your cup. That's the offer of eternal life. It's the offer of peace with God. Such a thing is a display of matchless love and matchless grace and matchless mercy. Come to Christ. Stop making excuses. Leave behind your law-breaking excuses. Don't say to yourself, I'm as good as the next guy, for that may be true, but you will not be judged on how the next guy did. You will be judged on the basis of the law. Make Christ your Savior. Thanks, John. You know, what you said today just, for me, just makes the the Ten Commandments, the laws of God, so very relevant and really guards my heart and my life when I I do things which which displease Him. Uh, But one question I wanted to ask you, you you mentioned, you said this, you said, when matters become frightening and out of control, many of us go back to familiar patterns and things that brought us comfort in the past. We do. We have this tendency when things go wrong to to sort of fall back into old patterns of life. Yeah, and those old patterns are sinful patterns. And, uh, you know, someone might, you know, complain about this and say, yeah, but, you know, this is just how my psychology works and I'm I'm helpless in such a time. Uh, But we're not helpless. Uh, In fact, we, we have a choice that we can make and that choice will be when things fall apart, I will either sin or I will trust in God. And so if I make God my true delight, and I, I focus my attention on both fidelity to him and that he has given me his Holy Spirit that is more than enough. I might grasp a hold of his promises and his commands and uh, put those two together. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. We believe Bible teaching is critical for God's people, and your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Newfeld available on this station. But we know there's times when you may miss the radio program, so we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series both audio and video with Dr. John, but also learn more about our ministry podcasts, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our desire is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust is available to as many people in as many ways as possible. 
For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.